This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Welcome and thank you once again for 30 minutes of your precious time as we discuss today the politics of national parks. Tourism in national parks has exploded, boosted by the COVID-19 pandemic to the point where some have described them as human zoos and Congress, Congress is looking for some way to address it. We will talk about the crisis with Kristen Brangle, Senior Vice President of the National Parks Conservation Association. Welcome, Kristen. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. So national park tourism has been growing steadily uh, for decades, but more so the last decade uh, since 2010. And there was a hearing with the Senate um, subcommittee and uh, Angus King of Maine had an interesting uh, comment. He said, we can accidentally love our parks to death. Why the growth in tourism? I think it's a combination of factors. Um, So first, the parks celebrated their 100th anniversary in 2016. And there was a huge effort, uh, advertising effort uh, called Find Your Parks. And I think a lot of people got very enthusiastic about parks and um, started to develop their bucket lists a little bit more. And um, so I think just having that advertising campaign um, really significantly increased tourism. And then some states have been doing their own advertising campaigns, like the state of Utah has the Mighty Five and Montana also has one. And so I think and I've seen Yosemite on several ads for, you know, airlines and, and things like that. And so I think parks are sort of on people's lists of places to go and see uh, with their families. And then, of course, during COVID, parks are hugely popular because people can't travel outside of the country. So everyone's yeah. uh, visiting these wonderful places inside America. And and they're cooped up in their houses and they want to get out and, you know, here's the outdoors. Was there before that 2016 anniversary, was there trouble getting people to the parks to experience the parks? No, parks have steadily become, you know, very, very popular. About 330 million people visit the parks every year. Wow. And that's more than sporting events and so many mm. other things that people go to. So Parks are very popular and some are more popular than others, but um, parks remain very, very popular with both national and international visitors. There was an interesting statistic. 31 million people visited parks in June. Um, How much of that is the pandemic? You mentioned the pandemic. How much of that is the pandemic? Some of it's the pandemic and some of it is school letting out. Um, (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I have children, so I'm very Mm -hmm. familiar with the school calendar. Um, but yes, starting in May, June, you see a very large, uh, spike in visitorship in parks and also the parks out West that have, um, you know, really heavy winters with lots of snow. Mm -hmm. This is when the snow starts to really melt and they can open up the Yellowstones and the glaciers to visitation. Um, but, um, yeah, there's definitely a weather trend and a school trend, um, a vacation time trend, sort of post Memorial Day, mm-hmm. uh, people really start to travel more. So 
there are definite tourism trends that you can notice with with park visitation. Now, did you go to the parks a lot when you were younger? No, I didn't. Um, it's always so sad when people ask me that. My family didn't have a lot of money, mm-hmm. um, so we stayed in New Jersey and uh, traveled um, uh, mostly to the Jersey Shore, and um, and then for school trips. We would go to the Statue of Liberty, which is a very famous national park unit, and we would go to Independence Hall. And so my first experiences in national parks were sort of the more urban parks like those. And um, and then I finally started to go to the Pine Barrens and the Delaware Water Gap and more natural places as I got a little bit older. That's interesting. You don't think of uh, the Statue of Liberty as a national park or even in Independence Hall. I grew up probably walking distance to Independence Hall, and I never realized that that's part of the National um, Park Service. There's this whole issue of growing tourism and, you know, that 31 million number, um, that's like one out of every 10 Americans. That's a pretty huge uh, that's a pretty huge number. Um, some of the people are recommending tickets to get into parks, um, shuttle buses to reduce uh, traffic jams. It's To me, it's kind of crazy making appointments with trees, but uh, that's a little silly. But um, what's the thought on that and, and having entry, uh, entry tickets? Well, the two parks that I just told you I visited as a child um, were all ticketed entry. Um, and so... Statue of Liberty, you take a ferry over uh, to the statue and you have to have a reservation before you go. And Independence Hall has had timed entry for quite a few years now. And so many parks have been doing um, some form of ticketed entry or timed entry. Alcatraz out in San Francisco has been. And so it's not a completely new concept to the Park Service. Um, They're actually quite good at it. But what happened Um, This summer and the previous summer is that we finally started to see some of the natural parks institute reservation systems like Yosemite, Rocky Mountain, Glacier, um, and people are starting to get used to it for these places. But um, I will tell you that um, several years ago when I took my family to Rocky Mountain National Park, my oldest was about a a year and a half uh, old. And um, we had to circle Bear Lake for oh, well over an hour to find a parking spot. And so, yeah, that's, uh, you know, you have to ask yourself at what point yeah. is that becoming part of the park experience? And is that really yeah. what people want to deal with when you just want to mm-hmm. get out on the lake and take a hike with your little baby and, right. and have a yeah. good time with your family? And so I think you have to ask yourself when your park experience is circling a parking lot for a really long time or or just waiting outside an entrance station, is that, does that, you know, change the way people feel about these places? And if you got a ticket that said, you can go to Bear Lake and Rocky Mountain, you know, you can get into the entrance at Rocky Mountain at 11 o'clock in the morning, which guarantees you to drive up to Bear Lake. um, And then, you know, you get a parking spot when you get there is that a more pleasant experience for people? And I really do believe it is. Yeah, without a doubt. So I can see in Independence Hall, Statue of Liberty, Alcatraz, where that timed um, entry would be. Would it be harder to do at a place like Yosemite? No. Um, So the way Yosemite has it um, constructed is that it's a day pass. And it's actually a multi-day pass that you get. It's about three days. And, um, And it says, you know, here's your 
three days that you can come into Yosemite when you get your ticket. And because it's so remote, it doesn't matter as much with Yosemite what time of day you get in. But they've refined this because the original day pass was for a seven day period. But they realized most people weren't staying there for seven days. They Mm -hmm. were staying there for three. So now it's a three day pass, which means more people are getting into Yosemite every week than they were the previous year. So these entry systems, whether they're timed entry per hour or day passes, the parks need to experiment with them to figure out what suits them and what allows them to maximize the number of visitors. Right. And so that's exactly what happened with Yosemite is that it was a seven day pass. They realized too long. We can get more people in if we cut it down to three, but we don't need to do timed entry because people are coming in all times of day because of the remoteness. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a process that needs to be refined. But I think um, the good thing is, is that people are experiencing the Valley of Yosemite in a different way than they were a couple of years ago when there were j- traffic jams all the time. Is there a possibility that could go down to two days or one days and would that help? Well, you have to work these things out with the tourism community, right? Because everyone is familiar with how long people stay in one spot. And so it's really important to work with the hotels and and the various other entities to make sure that, you know, if they're experiencing a two night stay, you know, then you make the adjustments. But, um, but I, you know, it's a constant refinement. And, you know, I didn't think about the hotels and the restaurants, but this is a pretty massive tourism um, system and network out there, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, parks are hubs um, of so much tourism in the country. And these gateway communities, some of them have been around for a really long time. Like West Yellowstone <clears throat> was a train stop. Wow. Um, and so you would take the train in. You'd go to West Yellowstone and then you would take a stagecoach into Yellowstone National Park and go That's to Old cool. Faithful. <laughs> and so so West Yellowstone sort of built up around the park and then Gardner on the north end, same, you know. And so some of these gateway communities have really, um, they exist because the park is there. Yeah. And yeah. so um, at Estes Park outside of Rocky is another good example you know, there's a lot to do in that area, but mm-hmm. um, but Estes Park thrives on their economy thrives on Rocky Mountain National Park being open. And we we talked. I mentioned a little bit about an idea: is shuttle buses. And um, is that something that's cons- being considered at various places? So Zion uh, National Park in uh, southwestern Utah has been using shuttle buses for quite some time, and this is because it's a, a canyon that you go in and out of. And so shuttle buses make a ton of sense for Zion because it drops you off at different trailheads. Um, and so shuttle buses are great. And, and, and Acadia uses them as well, um, where you have, you know, essentially a loop road at Acadia and you get dropped off along the way. So it definitely depends on the road system within the park and what the attractions are. And that's how you sort of can utilize that you know, the shuttle bus system. But if your park is like Yellowstone, where you have all these different entrances from different states and people may have their hotel and a certain entrance, Mm -hmm. it becomes much more difficult to do a shuttle bus system. Although Yellowstone is testing one, 
And there could be some flexibility there in terms of, um, you know, getting people to go to Old Faithful Geyser Basin, Norris Geyser Basin, and so on. But um, they need to they need to figure that out and test that out to see what would work in, in the more complicated parks. Would you recommend that? I mean, would you like to see that as a way of you know, maybe, you know, reducing this problem? I think shuttle buses are great in the parks that have them. Mm-hmm. I love them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and especially with kids, mm-hmm. um, it makes life a lot easier when you're enjoying the park and looking out the windows and pointing things out to your kids. Um, so, uh, but, you know, they're not for everyone, but I, I think they're great solutions. Boy, I, I like that train idea. That must have been neat. I mean, you know, stagecoach kind of thing. You know, that's pretty. Oh, good that, that that was a hundred years ago. I guess. <laughs> 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 the horses took you in, and <laughs> um, so you were at the Senate uh, Energy and Natural Resources Subcommittee hearing that uh, Angus King had held, and he, he had such great lines there. But one of them was watching the sunrise from Cadillac mountain is a wonderful experience staring at the taillights of cars in front of you not so much uh that's a rising complaint is the is the car and the traffic and you said you had gone through it um is that really kind of the the major concern for for people i think it's one of the major concerns for overcrowding in parks um but certainly I have been to Acadia and stuck in the traffic there. And so I'm highly familiar with it. And my daughter and I ended up going to Cadillac Mountain first thing in the morning to avoid the crowds. Yeah. So it definitely is a a big issue. Is it turning people away? I mean, I guess it's not something we'll be able to measure until later, maybe a year or two. But our people finally are are saying, hey, I'm not doing it. I'm done. That's it. There is no sign that anyone is saying that. There are yeah. tons of people in the parks, yes. <laughs> so yes. it is not obvious at all that um, uh, people are being turned away per se. But I think the worry is in places like Arches, yeah. where um, you have the park having to put signs up at the entrance saying, please come back in three hours. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing in a park. Wow. And, and so, you know, but Arches, if you're familiar with Arches, it's a, it's a wilderness park. Yeah. Um, most of it is wilderness and it has a very small yet well-established road system and it's only two-way traffic. And so, wow you drive up to the delicate arch parking lots because mm-hmm. there are multiple parking lots. Now they built extra ones and they're jam packed. Yeah. And so there's no point in just having people sit on this road yeah. indefinitely and not being able to do anything with their cars. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you take your once in a lifetime trip out to Moab, Utah, mm-hmm. you, want to see delicate arch because it's everywhere right Mm. you want to get your picture taken there sure and you're confronted with a sign that says come back in three hours and that's not even a guarantee that you'll get in wow wow it's crazy but you know i'm here in florida st petersburg or orlando not too far away it sounds almost like a disney thing i mean it sounds like a amusement park where you're kind of dealing with these same things and you were mentioning multi-hour waits for popular parks and i think you testified about increased litter disruption to wildlife defacement of native 
American artifacts. Is this the greatest challenge right now that the National Park Service is facing? I would actually say climate change is the greatest challenge the parks are facing, uh, believe it or not. But um, but it's definitely an issue. And litter is an issue in parks and animals eating the litter and mm. the um, people not using the restrooms. And mm. there's these things pile up after a while when you don't have enough staff people to take care of just the basic visitor management. And you mentioned that that's a, that's a good point too, because in this, during this rise in tourism, staffing has, has dropped for the National Park Service. I think the number was 2010 to, to 2016, there was a 16% drop in staff as the, as these tours, as this tourism is rising. What is the cause of that? Um, <laughs> Congress not giving the Park Service enough money. <laughs> Always goes back. That's, that's my job. <laughs> it's Angus King's fault. He's, he's complaining. No, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Let me tell you something. Angus King was part of a cadre of senators that I've been working with for many years now who dedicated so much of their time to getting parks more money. And yeah. we intro- we worked on a bill together called Restore Our Parks um, that was introduced back in 2017. And um, Senator Warner, Senator Portman, um, and Senator Alexander was part of that effort too. And these senators worked day and night with us to get the Park Service multi-billions of dollars for repairs. And so, um, so if anyone, I would call Angus King a problem solver. Um, but what has happened with park staffing funding is that the fixed costs that everyone in our country deals with, we all deal with this, you know, if you own a home or, you know, you just live your life, you know, prices of everything from energy to internet, all your Mm -hmm. fixed costs just go up and up and up. I mean, forget about it. Cable TV alone. I mean, I, I don't even know how much it costs these days, but fixed costs, you know, are your bills that you have to pay. They're your basic bills and the park service has them too. And so as fixed costs go up and the park service budget stays the same or just goes up a little bit, that those costs have to be absorbed. And that means that you hire far less people in order to cover your basic costs. Mm. And in so many of the older parks, things have been breaking down, water systems breaking down, Mm. the Grand Canyon's the Grand Canyon's water, their potable water is through a pipeline that goes in the canyon and it was Mm. breaking all the time. Mm. And so you're paying for all of these costs for repair, for fixed costs. And the federal uh, process, the budgeting process doesn't keep up with all of that. And so over the years, the Park Service has just had to lose staff over time. And now so many staff people have all these collateral duties that, you know, your park historian is also doing, um, you know, managing the visitor center. And so this has just happened over time where the federal, the the appropriations funding hasn't kept up with all the costs and the staffing costs and paying people livable wages and all of these things. And so Congress really needs to recommit to, funding staffing and parks better. And I think um, this last, uh, the, the interior bill that just um, w- was discussed on the House side 
has a pretty significant increase. It's almost a $300 million increase for park Mm. staffing. Mm. And that could add back a thousand new full-time employees to the park service. And that's what they really need is Congress to really commit to these increases to get us back to where we were staffing wise. Yeah, I was kind of kidding about King. You know, I liked um, covering Angus King. I thought he was uh, kind of almost like a John McCain, a kind of a, a maverick. I think he's an independent, right? So he has a little more room to kind of go in the middle there. But why do you think that support from Congress did wane? I wouldn't say that it waned. I think there's always been champions for parks. It's the budgeting process that was a problem. And um, not to use terms that would totally bore your listeners, but... Um, there were budget caps for several years. Um, Mm -hmm. So the federal budget couldn't move. It couldn't increase. Mm -hmm. And um, because of those caps, the park service budget couldn't increase. And so um, when those sort of measures are taken by Congress, it affects every agency and and their ability to um, increase staff. Oh, that's kind of interesting because when the cap comes off, you're really still behind. I mean, Oh yeah, the caps lifted. You're still behind. You talked about the defacement of Native American artifacts. Um, what's been happening there? So sad. Um, I was talking about Arches earlier and Canyonlands, which is just to the south of Arches in Utah. Um, we have seen graffiti and and all sorts of defacement mm. of Native artifacts. And um, you know, one of the greatest things in especially the southwestern parks is being able to experience the petroglyphs and and the native artwork and pottery and Mm -hmm. we have just seen an uptick in and defacement of it and um and this goes to one of the fundamental things that makes the park so different than any other agency is that the rangers educate you about what you're about to see Mm -hmm. And we need to get more of them on the ground so that they can point out to people, this has been here for thousands of years. Yeah. This tribe put this here and the story we believe they were trying to tell us X, Y, and Z. And when you don't have that ranger presence, when you don't have that continuous education, when you go to a park, you're not only missing out on some knowledge, but yeah. some appreciation for what you're seeing. You know, you mentioned uh, park rangers and one of the places that most people wouldn't think is part of the National Park Service is the um, theater, the theater in Washington where Lincoln died. Ford's Theater. Yeah. And God, it's wonderful when you go in there because the, uh, the park service has people there to explain what happened that night and um you know you hear about the assassination but they actually show you it's really really neat so i know what you're talking about when you talk about those rangers being out there they still called rangers yeah and you know it's so funny because um it was my seventh grade trip to dc where I experienced that at Ford's theater too. And and then they take you across the street where he yep. died, where president yep. Lincoln died. And I still remember it. Yes. You know, I mean, that was, you know, whatever it, over yeah. 30 years ago, but yes. I can still remember the original time I went to Ford's theater and that wonderful interpretation. Yes. It, it's gripping. It, it's, it's a lifelong thing when you go to a park and get good interpretation. It sure is. And, uh, you know, people don't realize, you know, Booth jumped off the, 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 the balcony and he got his boot caught on a, a piece of thing. It just was, it was fascinating. And they've kind of, um, 
I want to, uh, I shouldn't say, they've kind of disnified it a little bit. They make you go through, and maybe you've been there since, they make you go through this little uh, walking tour beforehand. And before it used to be more raw, you'd see the gun down there, and you'd see the bloody code, and, you know. But anyway, um, you were saying, we were talking about, you know, maybe timing different uh, entries, but um, there's also been talks about trying to steer people to some of the other 423 sites. Um, how will they do that? And do you think that's a good idea? Dispersal is an interesting concept. Um, in terms of dispersing people around a park, some of that is already happening. Um, and what has happened is that when folks get stuck on that long line on the way into arches and told to come back in three hours, they go to Canyonlands. So now Canyonlands is backed up too. <laughs> That's horrible. Oh. Okay. And so, and in that case, when you go to those two parks, there are arches in Canyonlands. Mm -hmm. And so you can actually have that classic, Red Rock Park experience mm -hmm. in either of those two parks, although almost everyone wants to still go to Delicate Arch. Sure. Um, but for parks like Yellowstone, you are going to go see Old Faithful. Mm -hmm. You cannot be deterred from that. Yes. You cannot be told to go to Bighorn Battlefield instead. It just, it's not going to fly with people. Right. Um, and so it's a nice idea to kind of say to folks, Hey, did you hear about this park site? Did you hear about that park site? Did you, did you go to Kodachrome, you know, state park in Utah while you were going to arches, you can totally make those suggestions. And I highly suggest doing that. I think there are tons of places on far system lands and BLM lands that people don't go to that they're crazy for not going mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend knowing the geography of where you are and going to see the other things that are there. Um, and I worked for many years on other land management agency lands and, mm -hmm. and, and um, I'm a big fan of places like Grand Staircase Escalani National Monument, which is managed by the BLM in Utah. And I think it's crazy. People drive past it to get to the parks. Um, but um, like I said, people want to go see El Capitan at Yosemite. Mm -hmm. They want to see Old Faithful. Mm -hmm. You're not going to deter them from doing that. And so right. that's so ignoring the fact that you need a good system to get people to Old Faithful is not good. We need to focus on those areas that are high attractions for the public and figure out a better way to get people to them um, without, you know, creating more of these problems, these collateral problems. So you can't stand at the entrance and trick everybody and say, yo, guys, they're giving out cheesesteaks over at the other park. And then they all run over there. Um, the Appalachian Trail, another area that's really um, having trouble. The trail stretches from uh, Springer Mountain, Georgia to, is it Mount Katahdin, Maine? Katahdin. Katahdin. Say it with oh, me. Man, I really Katahdin. Yes. Um, and um, the growing trash problems along the trail. Um, there was actually one area that they said looked like the fallout of a music festival, like a Woodstock uh, damage that they say could take um, two years to repair. Um, any consideration on what can be done for that? The Appalachian Trail is such a gift to the country. Um, 
what what the amount of foresight you had to have in order to protect that entire trail is amazing. Um, and I think many people know that the Appalachian Trail, much of it is managed by a nonprofit, the Appalachian Trail Conservancy. Hmm. And the Appalachian Mountain Club also has a series of cabins and volunteers that manage those cabins. And so when you think about it, this unbelievable trail is managed a lot by volunteers. Yeah. And what that says to me is, what do we as a public, what can we do to be better stewards of mm-hmm. those places? And this is where the leave no trace ethics and, you know, really need to come into play is with all the park staff that work along the the Appalachian Trail and the volunteers who take great care of it, the public still has to be accountable and yeah. and needs to be better stewards of it. And to hear that people have put left garbage all over the yeah. place on the trail. I mean, I remember when I was 19 years old and I did part of the Appalachian Trail in New Hampshire, we packed everything out. Everything that came with us came out with us. Mm. And, you know, we need to make sure folks do that. Would it be good to have like a public service campaign? I, I You may remember this commercial may have been before your time, but there was a wonderful commercial and it was trying to get people to control trash. And it was a Native American guy and looked yeah. like a chief coming up in the, in the canoe and he gets out and the tear goes down his face. I remember that. Ad. I mean, that was just so effective. Do we need more of that? I think there was also a Woodsy the Owl, give a hoot, don't pollute. Ah, yeah, I forgot right. about that. Um, I remember that from, um, but yes, uh, leave no trace is a wonderful, um, organization and, and they do a lot of education, but you're right. We need more of a public campaign about, um, not littering and being a good steward of our trails and public lands. And, um, it's gotta be ingrained in people. Yeah. You had mentioned allowing national parks to expand its transit service by getting more money through like an infrastructure bill or transportation bill. Is that going to happen? Oh my goodness. That's like the question circulating around DC. Um, So the um, Congress has a five-year transportation bill that they look to pass. Mm -hmm. And that's what's part of what's being considered in the infrastructure bill that you hear about the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Some people call it the BIF. Right. Um, And so um, that bill has a boost for parks, both for roads and bridges and and basic transportation systems, but also for transit and electric vehicle infrastructure. And so at this point, I would guess that the bill does end up passing by the end of the year. but um, but yes, there are some significant increases in, um, in in park service funding for transportation and transit. So we're hopeful that it's all going to move forward and it has a ton of bipartisan support. Yeah, I mean, you don't think of, you know, this as part of that bill and it, it just shows you the importance of that bill and, and what's at stake. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with the parks. I uh, was a kid in New Jersey who loved the outdoors and um, loved fishing and just wanted to experience more of the outdoors as I got older. And um, after I, so when I moved from New Jersey to Washington, D.C., I got a job 
uh, with a conservation organization and started to travel out West and just fell in love with the um, Western landscapes from Utah to Montana to, you know, the Olympics and, and uh, Point Reyes out in uh, California. And I mean, these places just amaze me. And I feel so fortunate that I've been in the conservation movement for over 20 years now doing this work. And um, I used to, before I had kids and, and was married, I used to take these crazy trips where I would spend two weeks in the wilderness. Nice. And, you know, I would spend that time in places like Grand Staircase Escalani in the Utah desert and um, in the back country in Montana. And I've never, as a kid from New Jersey, looking up at the sky in Utah or Montana and seeing every star mm-hmm. in the Milky Way, mm-hmm. I just would cry. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't believe that there were places in the United States where you could go and see a starry sky. And yep. my friend who was a photographer and... Um, Montana, we were in the Bob Marshall Wilderness area, south of Glacier National Park, and we drank water from the stream. Mm. And I just, you know, it's just so amazing. And to think that there continue to be these wild spaces around the country and these amazing historical and cultural resources, one of the greatest things that I was able to do in in this job was uh, protect a place um, to commemorate Harriet Tubman in in Maryland. And the Blackwater Refuge is where she grew up in Maryland Mm -hmm. outside of Cambridge. And designating a park unit as a tribute to her um, was another great, most gratifying thing to me. So I get to do a lot of great things in my job. I get to protect awesome places, places of great history and great stories. And um, I just... Absolutely. I feel like I have one of the greatest jobs in Washington, D.C. I'm reading a a good book right now called Braiding Sweetgrass. Have you heard about that one? That's been recommended. Yeah. Yeah. It's really wonderful because it's exactly what you say. You get such an appreciation for nature and little things like a pecan tree. And, you know, you mentioned Harriet Tubman. and I just never understood why Marilyn uh, didn't promote that. You know, she she was on a plantation that was really close to where Frederick Douglass was on a plantation. And I just never understood why they didn't uh, promote that. That's another that's well, another podcast. That's, that, well, that, but that's a, that's a, a good story that needs to be told of why that bill got held up for a dozen years. Yeah. The bill yeah. to protect a site to commemorate Harriet Tubman got held up in Congress for a dozen years. Wow. And what broke it loose was a deal that was made at the time. And I worked on this deal and we had to call people out and say, you're holding up these bills for what reason? You don't think Harriet Tubman deserves a site, but that's where groups like the, you know, my organization, National Parks Conservation Association are key because we hold people accountable. We want to get these places protected. I I just uh, was up in Northwest Georgia, uh, a house up there, just got a house up there and um, was through Tennessee. And geez, you never think of Tennessee so beautiful. You just drive through those parks and the trees and like you were saying, the night sky, it was just, it's it's amazing to me. I mean, it really is like going to an amusement park in a sense because the streams and the rivers and all it is, it's an experience explosion of uh, of nature well the great smokies um are the it's the most visited national park in really? the entire system yeah and wild. and you know and part of it is the great smokies stretch out uh, and they 
stretch into the border of North Carolina as well. Right. Um, and that was one of my first national park experiences um, yeah. when I grew a little bit older and could drive my own car. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of those areas like Cades Cove, mm-hmm. you can go back in time. Yes, 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 And yes. not only is it a beautiful natural place, but it's got these this amazing history of the people who lived there. And the, the fact that we have it so well preserved um, by the National Park Service is amazing. But um, and and it is it's it's a jewel and it's a hidden jewel. Like I said, I never knew it was so beautiful till I rode through it. But um, I could talk to you forever on this stuff. Anyway, <laughs> um, tell me three things as as we're looking at this. What do you think are the three most important things we have to do to address this? I really think it's a crisis. Well, I I think we need to look at what solutions are are working. Uh, for parks. And one is staffing. We need to get more staff into parks, more rangers, more historians. We need folks who can talk about um, the parks and their history and why we value them so much, because that will build the appreciation among the public for these places and, and how they need to be protected. I think the second thing is solutions like reservation systems and um, and transportation systems Um, We just need to take a look at these things and make sure that uh, we are investing in them. And then I think, um, thirdly, uh, we need to take a look at who isn't coming to parks and why. And we need to think about different communities of people who don't feel safe and welcome in parks and make sure that everyone does and that we build this appreciation among every community, every culture in our country. And so, but I do worry about everyone feeling welcome there and feeling like they're a part of the park system. It's kind of interesting. And and maybe there's a program like this. I mean, you grew up in a pretty urban part of Jersey. I grew up in downtown Philly, which was urban. I think there'd be a great program to take people from neighborhoods like that, maybe disadvantaged neighborhoods to um, parks like these, because it, re- it it really does. It opens your eyes. Yeah, and we we work on a program out of LA to bring um, kids into the California desert, and it would make you cry. Um, you know, these kids would have never had the opportunity to go into the California desert, and they're right smack, you know, in the middle of, you know, the Mojave mm-hmm. Desert, and they're mm-hmm. looking at that night sky. And, yes. And, yes, and I mean. Absolutely. I mean, I would have killed as a kid to be able to do sure, something me like too. that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Never knew it was out there. So when you need calling out of anybody, you just give us a shout and we'll, we'll help you out with that. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, I, I want to thank you for your service to our nation and, and these parks. Uh, they are jewels. They are treasures. And we really do have to take care of them. So thank you and your organization uh, for what you do and, and being warriors out there for us. Thank you. And thanks for having me on. Not at all. All right. We will be back back next week with another thrilling edition of the retail politics podcast until then always remember to read beyond the headlines have a great week with the front row award-winning reporter gerard shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported not invented or twisted Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career, covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. 
available now at Amazon.com.